Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, it's Katie. Just as a quick reminder, Ashley is out on maternity leave. And while she has been adjusting to motherhood, I've been interviewing guest co-hosts. And I'm really excited about talking today with Rachel Marie Stone. As a quick reminder, if you want to support kindreds and the work that we're doing, I would encourage you to become one of our patrons on our Patreon site. To give you an idea of what your support will help us do, the interviews that we are doing with guest co-hosts are often done remotely, and a lot of our guests don't have the equipment that Ashley and I do. So we use a piece of software that costs us $15 each time. So if you want to pitch in to support the cost of the podcast, visit patreon.com slash kindreds to sign up to support us today. Thank you so much. Today I'm speaking with my dear friend, Rachel Marie Stone, author of the very, very soon to be released book, Birthing Hope, Giving Fear to the Light. And I had the privilege of getting to read this beautiful memoir a little bit early. I'm so grateful for that opportunity and really excited to talk about it with you today, Uh, Rachel. We're so glad to have you on Kindreds. Welcome. Thank you, Katie. I'm so glad to be here. I told you this over text message, I think, as soon as I got to the airport, but I had time to read a lot of the book while I was flying from Raleigh to D.C. to do a speaking engagement. And it was in one of those tiny planes, you know, you just have like four seats across, um, two on either (laughs) side. And so I was really close up to next to somebody else. And I, as I was reading it, I felt so many moments where I really just wanted to cry because it was just so beautiful. And so I was taking these very deep breaths (laughs) because I didn't want to like freak out my seatmate. Um, Because it's just, it's such a stunning book. I mean, I, I think it's so beautiful to read a book by someone, you know, it's a very different experience, but more than that, it's just so thoughtfully woven in this tapestry of life and death and all of these liminal places in between. And I, I can only imagine how much work it took on your end to make it seem effortless to the reader. So um, I know (laughs) it does not feel that way. (laughs) (laughs) um that's amazing no um wow Katie that's like all of this like crying reading the book devouring it on an airplane um and that it seemed effortless like right there uh that's like the highest kind of endorsement I could ask for honestly no it was not effortless (laughs) let's just get that out of the way um I've been writing this book since probably December 2012 is when like the first essays that turned into the book kind of started coming out in my notebooks. Yeah. Yeah. Long gestation for this book. It was a long gestation. And when I think like, when I think of the sort of fears and hopes that I was experiencing, like not to just instantly politicize it, but you know, we were just coming off the 2012 election and, um, I'm going to resist the temptation to say like, oh, it was so much better than like, cause look what we're up against now that, you know, I felt like we, uh, we were in like an encouraging place. And then to have like a book about hope come out when we're at such a low point in our national conversation, is just, it's just strange. So I hope that, I mean, the one comfort that I have in these weird times is that beauty should go on and art should go on. So I feel good about that. Um, 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in this moment more than anything, we need to cling to the beauty and to the light and to the things that, I mean, your, your story is not just about what's beautiful. It's about what's difficult also and right. what's tragic and how all of those things intermingle and come in waves. So I think it's a, right. I think it's a great time for this book to come out. And uh, yeah, I'm so excited to share it. I mean, today with our listeners, but also to share the book with other people because I want everyone to read it. Uh, And you were actually one of the first people to educate me about the history of the medicalization of birth in the Western world. Mm. It was something I didn't really know a lot about, which I'm embarrassed to say was while I was working on a maternal health project. But uh, (laughs) I think never having given birth at that point, I mean, I just Mm. didn't really have a Mm. lot of familiarity. And so I've always been grateful to you Mm. for giving me some of that background Mm. where we, where we now treat birth uh, for the most part in this culture, like it's an emergency surgery, which, you know, sometimes, sometimes it is. And we're grateful for that care when we need it. But those Mm. interventions and tests um, are, seem to be ever present, even when things are going really smoothly. And that, to me, touches on some of the anxiety that you talk about throughout the book. And Mm -hmm. to me, it seems like anxiety is such a central part of how we've medicalized birth in the Western world. And I just... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was just wondering if you had thoughts about that, about the manifestation of anxiety in in kind of the hospitalization and medicalization of birth now. Yeah, so this is fascinating to me. I mean, as you kind of alluded to, like in the book, one of the things that I dwell on or extend at length is this idea that in the moment of giving birth, a woman is sort of on a threshold of like community and individuality, like um, connection and separation and also like life and in a very real sense, death. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and I think people, people of course, have always been aware of the tremendous um, gravity, which is a great word because gravity is heaviness, and like, um, gravid, gravid is the Latin for pregnant, right? But also grave, like the place where you are buried. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's always been this connection um, between uh, birth and death. So birth and death have definitely always been connected in people's imaginations so for example some of our listeners will have heard of um jewish kind of purity codes that call for a woman going to the mikvah which is the ritual bath to be purified after she's given birth now it's easy to misunderstand that as the the purification is for some kind of dirtiness or loathing of female bodies but that's not it it's actually more of a it's a ritual cleansing because Um, because she's had contact with blood and blood means life and the shedding of blood also means death. And so a woman, um, goes to the mikvah, the ritual bath to be purified after she gives birth because in giving birth in giving life, she, it's like she has been touching death. Um, and you know, around the world, you see various kind of rituals and, and, and metaphors that imply or suggest that we've all of us have thought about it that way. So, you know, inherent to anything that puts us in mind of death is this sense of anxiety and risk. And I think um, 
in there's lots of reasons why birth is so super medicalized, especially in the U.S. And one of them is you know general litigiousness. There's this sense that if a doctor does more and a doctor does all the all the things that can be done um that birth is somehow safer and that the doctor will be sort of inoculated against any claims of why didn't you do more right there's always that language of like we have done everything we could and in that is this illusion that like the more things that we do the safer and better and healthier it's going to be but like with all our technological hubris in kind of we see it in many spheres it turns out that like overly managing the thing whatever it is with our technologies turns out to kind of perversely do the opposite of what we were hoping so you know antibiotics are great and wonderful and we love them and for 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 when we need them and yet when we over overuse them we you know what creates superbugs and wipe out beneficial bacteria and we don't understand what we're doing and so um, I think there's a, a lot that's just an analogy but I think there's a lot of that in the medical management of birth where women's bodies are very capable women's bodies have this in many 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 cases and instead of being good now here's where I start to get spiritual or mystical instead of being good companions to people through their journey of birth um, the the medical industry and it is partly a, a profit driven scheme is is sort of bent on managing the thing managing labor like so rather than accompanying a woman in labor there's the sense of you know we need to take over this process so it's very you know I could go on and on about this as you know but there's obviously a real feminist concern in there as well right because the medicalization of birth was was largely driven by medical men who usurped the role of medical women who understood instinctively the accompaniment piece and um but because women's bodies were used oh my goodness i can't even believe this like today in new york city i just heard this on the news today in new york city um a statue of J. Marion Sims is being removed from kind of a central location and like transported to a, gra a graveyard somewhere. Um, because, and, and, and J. Marion Sims is, you know, remembered for being an OBGYN that advanced the, the field of gynecological surgery hugely. Like he was the first one to ever successfully surgically repair an obstetric fistula. But... And he did his surgical experimentation on ex enslaved black women without anesthesia. So, um, and, th and these are, like, he's a granddaddy of um, obstetrics and gynecology. And there it is, um, where women's bodies were used for material. Right, right. I mean, the racial component of what you're describing is really important. And also to think about how white men were the only ones allowed to go to medical school. Uh, at the time Correct. of, this, of right. this evolution and again yeah dehumanizing black women as if they had no feelings as if they had no bodily autonomy um and, and adopting practices that are still if you think about them quite inhumane and when you were talking about the whole framing of we've done everything we can it's about it's yeah. about the life of the the fetus or the baby right it's not about 
the woman's life and what happens to her. All those interventions are typically being done to her. And I to I her know, for the baby. Yeah. Right, supposedly. right. Like and and we don't talk a lot about um culturally about about birth injury and uh the impacts oh, of different yeah. interventions on women, not just in the moment, but but long term, I think because a lot of them are embarrassing for women to talk about, but that there doesn't seem to be any kind of repercussion for medical professionals for a birth that doesn't go well for, for the woman, if she's experiencing these kinds of complications after the fact, like it's all about the product of, you know, a healthy baby. Yeah. Yeah. That is so true. And, and, you know, among, among the injuries, the, the embarrassing or you know i don't think they should be embarrassing but the the uterine prolapse and the you know sometimes the incontinence that can come from a physical birth injury i think it, it, I, one of the reasons i became a doula was really because this the psychological piece the psychological injury that i think occurs routinely um to women you talk to women who've had difficult hospital births which is so many women who have had hospital births and you pick up on quickly that there has been trauma, um, psychological trauma from, from that language around, we need to save baby, baby's in trouble, baby doesn't like that, and, and the mm-hmm. sense that you are not more than a container. And that, and then this is the part that, that, um, that makes me almost shake with anger, or literally shake with anger. It, there's language that suggests that the woman is somehow a danger to her baby and that mm-hmm. the person in the room who really knows what's happening is the medical professional and that the woman in having any ideas about her own autonomy or her desires in giving birth is like uniformly regarded as selfish and is shamed for wanting the choice in how to give birth and so you hear about court ordered cesareans which it's just an unimaginable to me that that is even possible. Yeah, um, I was also thinking about. I think it was wasn't it Serena Williams after she gave birth was was hemorrhaging quite badly and was instructing the doctors on what they needed to do to save her life because she was losing so much blood and I think she may have had some other kind of complication or health complication before where she knew hmm. what was happening and she really had to demand her own care. And I think, again, going back to the racial component of this, we know black women die during pregnancy and childbirth, you know, three times the rate of white women. It might even be more than Mm. that, depending on the area. Mm. And just thinking about, yeah, like women are not taught to be in those situations, are not affirmed in knowing their own bodies and what's going on, even though there's so many signals that are happening during birth for Mm -hmm. women, if they were allowed to be intuitive in the moment, could probably help guide the process of what's going on rather than just like giving over all of their autonomy to the one saying, I know what's right for you in this moment, even though I'm not in your body with you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Even though I'm not in your body with you. Oh, that's amazing. So, I mean, one of the things that sort of, um, I wanted to say radicalized, but I don't think that's the right word. One of the things that I guess drove me to learn everything I could about birth um, was the experience of having my second son in Scotland after having my first son in a like a totally kind of um, traditional hospital setting in California. And in Scotland, 
or at least in I can I can't generalize, but in my experience, there is much more respect for um, what a woman's body knows and what a woman wants. So in Scotland, um, when I found myself pregnant, I checked in at the so UK. It's UK, so it has socialized medicine. Um, I checked in at the my local clinic, and you know, I'm uh, in a couple of days or weeks, a midwife came to my house, sat on my couch, um, and talked to me about just all, all the all the things that would be important, sort of the, you know, um, did I feel safe in my home? Did I feel safe with my partner? Did mm. I have access to enough nutritious food? Um, was I planning this pregnancy? How was I feeling emotionally? Um, and what did I want my birth to be like? And this was like actually a really important thing. So she, so I just remember her just so gently saying, well, here are your choices. You can go to kind of a traditional hospital ward setting. You can go to a midwife led unit within a birthing kind of a, it's, within a hospital but it's kind of like a birthing center or you can have a home birth and she kind of and she took the time to say what each of those things would be like and then they took very seriously so women in in the U.S. are often kind of mocked for having a birth plan that they bring to the hospital but Mm -hmm. they're like the (laughs) um the medical establishment was actively soliciting my birth plan and you know it was kind of it was like my homework that I had to get done And, um, just to have women at the center of it. And then even in the process of giving birth, it was like, um, it was like they were there to watch and support, but not to control, which is remarkable and beautiful and how it should be for everyone. (laughs) Right. That you only step in when there's a true crisis, but otherwise you, you let the woman have the power to move her body, to yell, to, um, you know, to splash around in water, to do, you know, to grunt. It's really, we're scared of it because it's like going to unfold. I shouldn't say we're scared of it. I think the medical establishment is scared of it because it doesn't, uh, you can't package it. You can't predict it. You can't measure it. But it's, you know, it's the most powerful, you know, primal forceful thing that many women will ever experience and it's like to rob them of that is feels cruel um yeah yeah I feel very fortunate that I was able to give birth in a birth center with midwives um independent birth center I wasn't at a hospital Mm -hmm. and to have the kind of care that you're describing but what I would say about that is unlike your experience where someone came to you and explained all your choices that were available I really had to seek that out on my own, and I happened to live mm-hmm. in an area where I had access to that. Um, most people, most women I know, uh, especially if they're in more rural areas, just don't have access to right. a place to give yeah. birth like that. And and it, I really think it should be available to people who who want it. And I'm I'm very very grateful for the experience I had because the birth plan was also homework for me. I had a doula there. It it definitely felt very much like my team of people were there to yes. encourage me and give suggestions, but not to tell me what to do. And I think that that, that was a really sacred thing. And I'm very grateful for it that I had the opportunity and, and wish that more people had it. I did want to talk about you 
being a doula. I love doulas. I loved my doula. It was so amazing to have someone there just as an additional support person, both for me and for my husband, honestly. Um, But you in the book talk about a very, um, there's a very central story in your book about serving as a doula while you and your family were in Malawi. And there was a particular incident that happened while you were there um, that was really formative. And I'm wondering if you could, without spoiling your book, (laughs) maybe share about a little bit about what happened that day when you were at the, was it a clinic, clinic setting? It was, yeah, it was a, it was a ward within um, a Malawian public hospital. So I really had no, I, I just need to say, I really had no business being where I was doing what I was doing. And I, I share this in the book, but I, I remained, I remained troubled by what I see as like my problematic presence um, mm. in in Malawi, you know, among um, some of the poorest women in the world, and so all I can say is like when I talk about this, I I feel like I need to stop and acknowledge like that these women like they're not just they're not material for my stories and Mm -hmm. in some ways I feel conflicted about even sharing them but so Mm -hmm. I did have the opportunity um to I had really carte blanche to kind of shadow uh different midwives um and it was kind of you know half reporter writer hat and half um doula hat and it was really hard to explain what it was that I wanted mostly I I wanted to just see but I also I wanted to um be a doula to women but I I thought before I like jump in here and say like I want to be the doula um I need to see how how things go see how things are here and so just to make a long complicated story short um there was an incident where or there was a this one afternoon and this woman was clearly in pain, clearly deep into her labor. And um, I was shadowing the midwife and then this woman kind of reached out to me and it was clear that she wanted me to stay with her. So I stayed with her and it seemed like her situation was serious. I mean, it seemed like she was well into that sort of tunnel of birth. Um, and but the the midwives kind of weren't taking they weren't seeing what i was seeing i guess and anyway so this woman strains and cries out and um she's gesturing toward her feet and i flung back her skirt and there was this baby her baby was right there born right in front of me um and i just kind of picked picked it up and handed the baby right to her mother and the baby was a little girl and then the midwives all started then they took then they took notice and they all started yelling like what are you doing you're not wearing gloves and I was kind of like well what's the big deal and they were like oh well she's um she's HIV positive um so yeah that was this moment of uh, as a person who's always um been full of fear and anxiety uh, particularly around diseases, it was this moment of like, oh, in order to help, 
this little girl come into the world, I needed to exchange hands with death, maybe. And it seems like now this little girl and her mother, it's, they're more than a metaphor. But that moment is kind of a metaphor for what I see as, um, you know, full catastrophe, fully engaged living, right? Like we can't mature as individuals until we accept that the, the reality of suffering and sacrifice is always a part of, of our lives. We do so much to try to insulate ourselves from those risk-taking mm-hmm. things. And I, when you were talking about all of the precautions you had to take in Malawi, all the medications, anti-malaria stuff, how you had to wash all of your vegetables. I mean, there's this very like ritualized life that you lived while you were there <clears throat> to protect yeah. you. And then it didn't protect you, right? It, was like, <laughs> it didn't protect me, yeah. And, and I, I think, yeah. again, this is why I love your book so much because – there's the that theme is woven throughout. So it's the same thing that we were just talking about with the medicalization part of we try, 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 try to insulate that birth from death. And yet there's there's something about it that we cannot control. It's uncontrollable. And no matter what efforts yes. we put into place, we can still have those moments, no matter how careful we are where we touch death and there's just nothing we can do about it. And we resist it in all kinds of ways. Um but I just thought that that was such a beautiful moment of like, it happens, period. There, Yeah, it does. And I mean, and, and there's almost like um, one could say, well, you could have just put on gloves and eliminated. Well, I didn't. OK, like I didn't have gloves on or, you know, we, we think we can just kind of through more planning or more whatever, um, fully insulate ourselves. And we can't. And it's not that we're, you know, stupid or foolish. It's just, or maybe, or maybe we are sometimes. But we, no matter what we do, we can't um, totally cut ourselves off. And if we could, we would be probably living a really diminished life. Right. Right. I agree with that. And and I think what I, I, I just want to gush about your book. So I, I also <laughs> want to have a, a, a conversation about it. But you also incorporate those themes around the risk taking with how you think about God as a laboring mm. woman and you incorporate some of the other sacred stories. I love uh, the midwives in Exodus one who refused to comply with the Pharaoh's orders to kill all the Hebrew mm-hmm. baby boys. And I love how you talk about in detail, the birth <laughs> of Jesus and Mary laboring and that yes, Jesus was born through a woman's vagina, covered in blood, just like all of us. And how, just like all of us. Yeah, like why? That is not a radical idea. And yet we don't ever <laughs> really hear anyone say it like that. Um, all these are stories about risk and vulnerability. And I, I'm just wondering what you think about why does the church, why is it, why are we so reticent to embrace the vulnerability of God? And, and and of one another. Why why is that such mm. a barrier for us collectively? Yeah. I mean, so the answer is probably different in different expressions of Christianity. I'm just going to take a wild guess there. Um, but, you know, certainly certain streams of Christianity, many, many, many have been, I'm just going to say it, like afraid of women's bodies. Um, and, you know... There's theological traditions, and I talk about them in the book, um, that really and truly earnestly believe that, like, sin and brokenness are in the world because of women. 
Right. Um, so I think, you know, it would, it's, it's more rational, quote unquote, um, it's more rational to um, conceive Christian faith and identity as something that's like done through the mind and not through the body. Um, and I think there's lots of reasons for that kind of, you know, rooted in Western philosophy. But um, again, I think like it's way more appealing. I'm thinking of prosperity gospel traditions now within the United States um, and other and, you know, definitely in other places. It's almost it's almost like a triumph of mind over body. Right. Because there's this whole like mm -hmm. you can believe that you will be prosperous and rich. And it's like the power of your mind is like going to do that for you. And then like often those theological or, you know, spiritual expressions are like radically removed from the condition of people's bodies, right? And I think even, um, even just getting back to that theme of race, right? Um, it's it's like an escape from the material conditions that threaten black and brown bodies to kind of will yourself into this prosperity gospel mindset of if I just think this, I will achieve. And so, yeah, I think it's tempting to kind of be neoplatonist and um and and focus on sort of mind and belief rather than than body but that's very i mean that's that's a that's a that's a politics too and yeah. and, it, and it worries me i think do we not um, forget a denial that jesus got yeah. murdered like do we not <laughs> <laughs> jesus was murdered yeah yeah we don't really yeah. It's like we forget about that part and we go straight to the to the resurrection but but Jesus was murdered for the work There that is he did. that there is that famous um I just heard about this at the Festival of Faith and Writing but some some uh prosperity gospel preacher was asked, "Well, how do you, you know, how do you justify your very triumphal sort of theology when you consider that Jesus, the man at the center of this, you know, system was murdered and he goes well he had his setbacks um oh right <laughs> and it just you know no wow. uh yeah so i think i think there is this 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 deep forgetting across wide swaths of the expression of christianity in the world that yeah that jesus was murdered that Mary was this unwed, underage, vulnerable person. Um, and, you know, and that she was, like, the sacred stories remember her as someone who was diametrically opposed to, you know, to the old um, man who's supposed to know, right? Like, so the old wise man, um, Elizabeth's husband, right john he he's supposed to know but he doesn't know it's mm. not john is it i just messed that up that's her son. and mary knows it yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's her son what's her husband's name oh gosh i'm writing about this story and i mean i'm forgetting it in the moment it's uh i will add it in the show notes <laughs> <laughs> sorry elizabeth's husband but hey can we just celebrate the fact that for once we can't remember the biblical man's name <laughs> i was just gonna say i'm actually so happy <laughs> is it like is it 
Is it Zephius or something like that? It's something. It's something like not. Zechariah. Is it Zechariah? I'm. 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 I'm hugely embarrassed, and I know. Let me Google this right now. Elizabeth's husband (laughs) in the Bible. I think Zechariah might be right. Zechariah. Yes, you got it. You got it. Yep. Nailed it. Um, yeah. And you know, okay, so sidebar about this story, because I'm working on this story for my book, too. Uh, Oh, excellent. So I love how basically Gabriel comes and says the same thing to Zachariah as he will say to Mary. Yes, that's it. And Zachariah says basically the same thing that Mary does. He's like, how can this be? And Gabriel's like, dude, you're not going to be allowed to talk until this thing comes to fruition. And Mary literally asks the same question. He's like, well, you know, I'll give you a logical answer. But they're both like just saying, how can this be? And one of them gets yeah. totally punished just, in the moment. And just shut down. Like, you shut can't down. talk, dude. Man, I wish Gabriel would come and silence a few more dudes right now. That'd be, that'd be great. <laughs> So then I love this whole idea of, like, Elizabeth is enjoying her pregnancy with no no noise. <laughs> There's lots of silence. <laughs> and then Mary finally shows up when she's six months in. And she's like, finally, like, someone I can talk to who gets this weird thing that's going on. I just love the image of them together. The the Mary, Elizabeth, three months of oh, them yeah. together during their pregnancy is just probably one of my favorite stories from the Bible. It's so good. And that, you know, and that for once, the man's not, like, busting into the room to interrupt their woman time. Like he can't talk. Because he can't talk. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, related to that, so we're talking, this is my segue, unplanned pregnancies. Neither of those are planned pregnancies. Yeah, exactly. And unplanned pregnancies are a big part of your of your story like in your own life, but also your, your mother's and your grandmother's lives. Um, and, and all of them made different decisions about what they were going to do about those unplanned pregnancies. Um, can you talk about what you make of those different reproductive decisions that, you know, ultimately allowed you to be here talking to me right now? Yeah. Um, but do you feel like you can distance yourself from that at all and think about the circumstances they, that they were in? You know, do you think they would have made oh, yeah. different decisions if they were uh, if they were making those decisions today versus when they did years ago? <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, um, <laughs> I always think of what my grandmother said to my mom, which kind of sounds horrible. Like, uh, okay, I'll just say it, and then I can then we can talk about it. But my grandmother, my mom was born in 1960, which is the same year that the pill was born. And my grandmother, I guess, told her, I think repeatedly, like, you know, you were lucky that you were born in 1960 because <laughs> then we had the pill. the radar. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, and I just sort of imagine my mom kind of like sliding into home, like, um, <laughs> here I am. Last call. I exist. Last call. <laughs> Last call. <laughs> um. And I remember, like, I always thought that was really, maybe I only heard that as an adult. And I thought, like, that's really, really funny because I, like, viscerally got that. Like, the the fear of of not being able to plan, right? Um, and, and the fear of 
what, what it really was expressing, I think, is that my grandmother loved sex and was deeply ambivalent about babies at best. So uh-huh. yeah. the pill allowed her to enjoy sex and not fear babies. Now, I've heard, now, I, I shared that line with a friend, and she said, wow, that's a really horrible thing for a mother to say to her daughter. And I honestly had never thought that it was that horrible. Like, it was, it was more like a statement of fact for my grandmother. Like, you are lucky to be here. And so, like, a couple of years ago, I said to my mom, you know, isn't it, isn't it weird that somebody as damaged as your mother, like, what business did she have having children? And my mom... My mom is takes things maybe a little easier than I do. Maybe she doesn't fret as much as I do. And she said, well, I don't know what business she had having kids, but I'm glad I'm here. Right. And I just thought, like, that was really, was really beautiful. So there, without romanticizing, you know, the very, very hard circumstances that women find themselves in and have found themselves in forever – I, I would say I'm really glad I'm here, um, and I think I do think there is some beauty in in that arises out of just the bizarre circumstances that make it all possible for us to be you know right here having a conversation like it's absurdly improbable, and I love that. But when I think about you know the deep deep privilege that. I think, well, when I think about existence, I think about the deep privilege that it is to, to, to sort of be here and to be able to make the kinds of choices that um, my mother made and my grandmother made and my great-grandmother made. Um, but I, I think there is this sense that women are not allowed to be ambivalent about decisions sure. that they make if they include parenting. And... I, yeah. I, I mean, I really, I really struggle with that because I, I love a lot of aspects of being a parent and it's also meant that there are other things that I really wanted to do that I haven't been able to do. And I think being honest yep. about the, I don't even want to say necessarily sacrifices, but once a decision is made, there's a saying no to other possibilities and I think it's Absolutely. O- it's okay for us to grieve those things that have been lost in the decision uh, to do one thing or the other mm-hmm. and to acknowledge what the other realities and possibilities might have been. And, and I think this gets back to essentializing women as if their only role is to give birth and to raise children. Um, and so it's a, a way of saying there are no other possibilities for you if you want to do something right. else. But that's just not... That's not the reality for a lot of people who have privilege and access to other opportunities. No. And I think just being right. real, real honest about that. And I thought about too, when my daughter is older, like how will I talk about that with her, you know, especially in thinking about the decisions she will make later in life and just being really honest with her about how much, you know, we love her and plan for her. And it was also a saying goodbye to certain parts of our life when she arrived and, I think that we need right. to be just more honest and transparent as appropriate, you know, with our children, but also with one another about what the experience has been. I don't want anybody to feel duped oh. into parenting. That is a horrible I way. So, I so agree. I, I actually, I was just in an independent bookstore in Grand Rapids yesterday and saw this book and the title just jumped out at me and I had to sort of stretch to grab it. And it was called Regretting Motherhood. And, you know, kind of 
on the back and the inside flap, it was talking about how it's super conventional. It's like a trope for this idea of like people who are non-parents that they will at some point regret. Mm-hmm. Like their regret is somehow expected, right? And so if someone says, oh, I've never had any children, it's almost like the conventional answer is what? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, right? Um, but, you know, what's less explored is the idea that mothers will regret having had children. And I kind of think, like, like that's got to be an enormous part of it. Like, I certainly think <laughs> I do have a weird chapter in the book. I mean, maybe it's weird. I don't know. I think God, right, the, if the flood story is a story of God regretting giving birth to humans, basically. Yeah. Right? Because humans have become so violent, so selfish, um, so exploitative of one another that God's like, Psh, why did I do why did I do this? This is Let not me good, mass right? And so, genocide now. <laughs> well, I mean, it does like if we are gonna continue this God as parent metaphor, it does make one think like what is actually happening here like it, it is it is like it is ma- mattress uh, parasite wait no that's killing your parents now i can't remember the, what the it, i don't even know what that infanticide. word is infanticide infanticide although so, i guess yeah we weren't exactly not people weren't well not i guess infants. there were infants they were along the spectrum sure. of ages at that point right yeah that is a bizarre story and i remember is it uh i forget who it is who wrote The Hungering Dark? Is that Beekner? Uh, uh, yes, I think so. So talking about how odd it is that we uh, lift up the ark and then and the animals on the ark, like this cute, fuzzy Bible story for kids. <laughs> I guess because there's animals involved. But if you think about like Because the there's animals, but it's not for kids. It's super scary. <laughs> yeah. Like the context in which that happens is horrifying. And maybe we should <laughs> quit you know, making it this, this rosy, cute picture of, of, Aunt. it's not like the biblical zoo, you know what I mean? Like, it's no, it's not. And it's, you know, and I, but I, but I also think like, I feel like there, there's a happy medium, not a happy medium. It's not happy at all. What am I saying? I feel like there's a midpoint between this story tells us that God is monstrous. And this story is a happy story about animals in a boat. Because I think, like, when we, when, as religious people, we want to talk, we want to talk about, we want justice in the world, right? And I am in no way condoning the use of violence to repress evil. And in fact, I don't think that that works. But as an expression of ancient Near Eastern belief, it's like the flood story is really, God, what are you going to do with all the injustice that's on the earth? And really, it's it's not so much a story of destruction as it is starting again. And so, like, I think when we when we sort of cry out for justice, and when we ask the question, like, why didn't God do something, you know, during the Rwandan genocide, during um, the civil war in Syria, we say, why didn't God do something? And like, that's maybe script like a sacred story answer to that question. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still super problematic, and I don't know how to do it, but I don't know how to deal with it. But I think it's it's supposed to be, like, a, a birth story in reverse. Like, we're going to just have a do-over here. It is a really problematic story and one that I think will never feel 
great about. And I think there are a lot of sacred stories like that that we don't pay as oh, much yeah. attention to that oh, yeah. really do require us to ask really, really deep questions. Um, so I wanted to talk, um, ask you a last question before just letting folks know how to get your book. But I wanted to talk about pregnancy as, to me, as one of those liminal places, one of those in-between places mm. where, where something mm-hmm. is and something is not at the same time. Uh, and I think when we debate abortion specifically, those who support abortion access tend to deny that fetal life has any value at all. And mm. and those mm-hmm. who oppose it want to suggest that fetal life has all the value. And I just wonder, and you're thinking about birth and death and everything in between, if there's another way for us to enter this conversation. Um, and what do you see as the real root of the debate? And I know that this is a, I know this is a hard question. So, mm. but I just wonder, like, given all of the, everything that you've seen, or even thinking about your experiences in Malawi, yeah. is there another way for us yeah. to talk about it that doesn't pit fetal life against the well-being and life of the mother? Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, I think if I had the answer to that, I, um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think, I think the word that just flashes on um, kind of before my eyes is, and what is missing is, is graciousness, um, deep graciousness. And um, I think the question um, around the conversation around abortion rights in this country um, is really stuck on this idea of legality or illegality or legal access or lack of access. And I, I think I've looked enough into the history of reproduction and contraception and abortion to know that um, no matter what prohibitions are placed on any of those things, women have always and will always seek to prevent pregnancy and seek to end pregnancy. And this is done in varying degrees of safety and legality all over the world and will always happen. So I I think it's important just to acknowledge that. So there, there, I've heard so many myths. I don't, I can't, that sounds dismissive and is unfair to the word myth. Actually, I've heard so many, so much ideological argument that, um, you know, Roe v. Wade unleashed a floodgate of disregard for unborn life. But I don't, I don't think that that's true. And, and yeah, and along with that, right, this idea that having abortion be accessible makes it happen more. But the numbers, the research does not bear that out. And in fact, a country like Malawi, where abortion is illegal and very dangerous, has a higher per capita rate of abortion than the United States, which I, I've gone back to check those numbers so many times in sort of this paranoid frenzy that I must be getting it wrong because I can't possibly be right. But Mm -hmm. as far as I know, like, and I'm talking, you know, Guttmacher Institute numbers, like that's the case. Um, 
so what do we get from that? We get that it, it's going to happen, okay? And we are not going to agree on what that means. But if we can agree that women need tools to be able to make informed and ethical decisions, we are going to have to talk about a lot of other things before we even ever, well, at the same time as we talk about abortion. So I think for me, as someone who similar, now I don't want to compare experiences, but I ended up in a situation where I was an informal, untrained doula for women while they were having their pregnancies terminated, being that person mm. who held their hand. Mm. And unlike uh, labor, which usually takes hours, an abortion is very fast, um, you know, under five minutes, especially if it's if it's early. And so it was these very short moments of accompanying a woman into the room, you know, helping her get on the table holding her hand as she's holding her breath for this to be done. And then if I had the opportunity learning about her story and maybe why she was there, what she was feeling. And for me, that was really sacred. And now having given birth myself, I I can say that those were equally sacred experiences. What troubles me about debating abortion specifically is that it really makes it an abstract issue when that decisions about our lives are are never abstract they're taking place within the context of a life uh of Mm -hmm. you know real financial issues real um social issues you know what support do i have what money do i have what stability do i have and anytime we make it and physical ability and health physical ability health and on and on and on um gender identity (laughs) like all of these things are happening at the same time and so I have limited resources available to me and I prefer not to use them on debating with people because I'm not a very good debater. What I know is there is a need for people of faith in particular to accompany women throughout their lives in making decisions about their reproduction, about their reproduction and about their families. And there's enough need of that that I could spend all of my time doing just that. And I would rather be that compassionate presence for a woman, no matter what she's going through, whether that's a miscarriage, infertility, terminating a pregnancy, having um, postpartum depression, whatever it is. I want to allocate my time and my resources to that because that is more life-giving and I think more like Christ than to be debating an abstract issue on social media or, you know, Usually on social media, right? <laughs> like with it's, white Yeah, men. it's usually on social media. Um, yeah, and I feel the the weightiness of all this because I do, I do I do think there are real moral and ethical questions Agreed. that are not always easy. So I in the agree. book, I, I reference a few of them. I th- I mean. You know, and I don't even want to. I don't even want to get strident and say like, "Here is what I believe, and here is what I think is wrong." Because I, 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 I think this is what I think, Katie. I think people don't always. I think this is true that people don't always. People often don't even do what they think is actually moral or right, but they end up doing it anyway. I think the history of human beings. I mean, if Genesis is about anything, it's about the human propensity 
to choose uh, evil, to, to somehow choose what's not good, even in a place where it seems like, you know, it, making the good choice is easy. And so, yes, people find themselves in seemingly impossible situations all the time. And I tremble to be the person who is going to throw a stone. Um, and I aspire to be the person who is going to be, be there. Um, right. And it's not, I think we overestimate the importance of like, do I approve of what you're doing or not? Or am I, you know, doing everything I can to stop you doing what you're doing? Cause the reality is we are trapped inside of our own, like no one else knows what it is to be me or to be you or to be anybody else. And we owe each other uh, respect and companionship. And yeah, I think that, I think that's a, I hope that that's a posture of graciousness. Um, I think we're called to the, what my friend Robin Henderson Espinosa calls the ministry of accompaniment. Right. Yeah. And that that should be at the forefront. And I think also, I agree that people don't always make moral decisions. But I think we ought to be careful to say that always giving birth when you're pregnant is the moral decision. And that, mm. you know, having an abortion is always a moral decision. I think that those lines are not clear. And that, that there is a, there's a false dichotomy being made by those who oppose abortion that to give birth is always the moral decision. And I just don't believe that that's true. I don't think you can make really clear distinctions about something that is so complex, so individual from, you know, person to person. You just cannot draw those clear lines. And, and, and to me, again, pregnancy is a mysterious, well, I don't know mysterious. It's a liminal, it's a liminal place. It, 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 is. Is, and it, it yeah. is and it isn't. It's complex. It's murky to me much like the nature of god the nature of god is murky and complex and i'm still trying to understand the mystery of that right god god is love and i don't want to say it this way but i think it's true i guess i'm uncomfortable in some way but god love is also compromise right and we we know that we know that in a visceral sense it might make us uncomfortable because it seems like inconsistent but well, because love is the relational. consistency. Love Say again? Is re- love is relational. Love- yes, it's embodied. It's relational. It happens between real people or it's not love. That's so right. God is not law. God is love. Um, and it the, this means that we don't get to have our tidy always and nevers. That's right. Rachel. Where can people find your book and where can they find you on the internet so they can share and gush all about your book? (laughs) So you can find me at rachelmariestone.com. I am also on Instagram as rachelmariestone and that's where I post the most these days. And you can find my new book, Birthing Hope, Giving Fear to the Light on Amazon and independent booksellers across the interwebs excellent so go ahead and pre-order it now because this i believe this episode will be out before the official launch so go ahead and pre-order your copy so you can get it hot off the presses (laughs) okay so (laughs) now we're gonna 
Thank you so much. That was such a good conversation. Just, I mean, just for me, I, I learned a lot. I always learn when I get to, to talk with you. Um, so we always do a section about what we're reading and what we're listening to. And obviously everyone is reading your book, but uh, I was wondering <laughs> if there was another book that you might want to share, especially since you're just getting back from the Festival of Faith and Writing. If, if there was anything else that you thought yes. you might want to pick up after we're done with your great new book. Oh, yeah. Well, I think you could talk to you could have a great conversation with Ariel Levy. Um, and she just came out. Well, it may have been last year. Um, her book, The Rules Do Not Apply, which is a memoir. So I think a lot of people will have read her essay, um, Thanksgiving in Mongolia, which was in The New Yorker a couple of years ago. And so in that story, she describes um, giving birth to a baby very, very, very early. And so I was tempted to call it a miscarriage, but I think it was, you know, that again, to those liminal spaces, right. It's not Mm -hmm. quite, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a birth. Um, and then very quickly it's a death. Um, and at the same time, um, Ariel's marriage was falling apart and her, financial situation was disintegrating and the world was coming down around her. And what's incredible in this memoir is the way she kind of explores her own, um, the, the ways in which she is at fault and the way, and the ways in which she is not at fault for the things that happen and there's just this very fragile, vulnerable openness to, again, that openness to what is actually, right? So rather than numbing oneself out, what, rather than retreating into, you know, a kind of prosperity thinking or a positive, you know, a positive thinking kind of a thing, she just beautifully embraces the pain that is. And, and I think it's still ultimately like, it's hugely depressing, but also hopeful, which are my favorite kind of books. <laughs> hugely yeah. depressing, also hopeful. And I think what you were saying about how to describe it, I think it's really important to mirror the language that the person uses. So if that if oh, describes yeah. it as a birth, like, I think that's what we need to call it. And um, Mm -hmm. I think that's just really important in in telling our stories that people respect the language that we use. Um, Mm, So thank you. Yeah. And now that you said that, I'm not even sure that she says that it's a, it's a birth. It's, 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 it's almost this uncategorizable thing that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll let readers read it and, and I'll let Ariel Levy say it much, much better than I could because she did. And again, the title was the rules do not apply. Thank you for that. So I had uh, a cool thing happen, which was when I got the new copy of your book on Saturday of last week, I also got another book the same day by another friend that I wanted to lift up. So it just felt like, oh, this is so great and, and very much connected to to the topics that you're talking about in your book, though from a different perspective. The title is Trust Women, A Progressive Christian Argument for Reproductive Justice by Rebecca Todd Peters. And I also got to read this, well, quite, it might have been several years ago when, when Toddy was working on the book. She's a, a 
professor of social ethics at Elon University in North Carolina and had mm. been working on this book for a while. And she really delves into what she defines the problem is around abortion debate is that we're in this judgmental frame where mm. no matter how folks feel about the legality of abortion, they tend to say things like, well, I would never have an abortion, but if you need one, you know, there's nothing, I wouldn't make that decision for you. And how that's actually like a really problematic stance. And I agree because if I say, well, you can do what you want, it doesn't mean that I'm going to be there for you when you need it. You know, when I was talking about that ministry of accompaniment, it doesn't mean that I'm going to ensure that you have access. It doesn't mean I'm going to make sure you can get the money together uh, to have your abortion or to cross state lines if the you know, if you're not able to get one where you are. So she really delves into that. She also terms a new, um, she coins a new term for the liminal place of what's going on in the uterus during pregnancy. And she calls, she she refers to it as a prenate, P-R-E-N-A-T-E, to kind of give that a new name because some people say fetus, some people say baby, and she finds both of those kind of problematic. And so she coins, like any good um, professor of religion, <laughs> coins a new right. phrase, right? Like that she's like, I'm going to give us new language to use. Um, she they also can't goes, help themselves. I know. God bless them. <laughs> um, she also <laughs> dives into the history of, of when abortion was legal and then illegal, and it really mm, very much parallels yeah. some of the medicalization of birth at the same time as we're talking about um, gynecology and obstetrics. So uh, it's really, really good. It's the first book that's been written like this, I think, since the 1980s. And so it was definitely overdue, um, not mm. to use a pregnancy metaphor, but uh, we all, need, <laughs> the world needs this book. So please pick it up. It's Trust Women, a Progressive Christian Argument for Reproductive Justice. And Rachel, you are going to end our show with someone that you wanted to lift or some people that you wanted to lift up for our kindreds of the moment where we talk about people who are doing amazing things in the world. So tell us who you wanted to lift up today. So I am going to lift up Laura and Nicole Reynolds, who are a married couple and full disclosure, full good friends of mine. And I also serve on the board of their nonprofit. And they are they are a married couple with very young children, and they run um, an amazing musical nonprofit that's kind of I always find it a little hard to describe um, because it's not straight up music therapy, although Nicole is a licensed music therapist, and it's not straight up music lessons, although both of them are amazing musicians and performers and teachers. But what they do is run programs. Um, they run community music programs for. Um, for individuals and groups who have disabilities, and some of these disabilities are are quite profound. So you will see people who are generally nonverbal singing, and you will see people who are generally immobile shaking tambourines or um, bowing a cello. And truly, music is one of those things that um, can just unlock a soul, if I can say that. And I think the work they do is beautiful and life-giving. And their nonprofit is called All Together Now Music. And you can find them at altogethernowmusic.com. And you can check out some of the 
gorgeous music videos that they have made with their clients and it's just empowering beautiful work I love so, yeah. that we'll link to it in the show notes so people can check it out and oh brilliant support them follow what they're doing and thank you for sharing that that's it's really great to talk again about people who don't fit into categories but do something that's yes. needed in the world like god bless people who mm-hmm. are willing to work outside the institution <laughs> to do something yeah that's, that's really needed that's them Mm -hmm. like uh, it's hard it's hard to describe because it's a thing that we didn't know we needed maybe and now it exists in the world yeah and the and the fact that it can't be categorized easily doesn't prevent them from doing the beautiful work that they're doing no no that's it thank you so much for being on kindreds it's been such a great conversation i'm really grateful for your new book but also just for who you are in the world Mm, thank you so much katie It's been really fun. I always love talking to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 